All right, so if you know anything about World War II history, and even if you don't, it's okay. Um, give you enough information in this little illustration that it should still be helpful. So you know that D-Day was a decisive moment, okay? Um, maybe you didn't know that. You probably did. If you didn't, D-Day was a decisive moment um, for the Allied troops in World War II. So it was also, also called Operation Overlord, the invasion of Normandy. So there were 160,000 Allied forces that landed in Nazi-occupied France. And on D-Day, the Allied troops landed on the beaches of Normandy in order to establish a beachhead on the mainland of Europe. So m military experts knew at the time that a successful operation would ultimately secure an Allied victory. So there were most certainly more battles to fight um, until World War II would be fully over, but the decisive battle had been won on D-Day when those Allied forces actually did secure that beachhead. So it was only a matter of time between D-Day and anybody? VE Day, right? Victory in Europe Day. Which, was, which signaled the end of World War II. So what we know as VE Day, you know, it's, it's obvious what that means, VE Day, Victory in, in Europe Day. But what does D-Day mean? Anybody know? What's it stand for? If you don't know, you're not alone. According to defense.gov, this is the most frequently asked question at the National World War II Museum. And actually, there's not a simple, single answer Experts, you know, disagree on this, apparently. It could be as simple as D stood for shorthand, for day. Just D-Day, it's D code for day. There are other opinions, but the most likely meaning, perhaps, is what Brigadier General Robert Schultz said on behalf of U.S. General Dwight D. Eisenhower. He wasn't yet president at the time, obviously. He said this, be advised that any amphibious operation has a departed date. Therefore, the shortened term D-Day is used. And then he went on to say that there were several other D-Days during the war. Normandy is just the one that everyone remembers because it was the most significant. So D-Day, day of departure for the invasion, for the mission. And with the success of D-Day, the war against the evil of the Nazi regime had already been won even though it was some time before the final shot was fired, right? So victory was inevitable, even secured, despite not yet being f realized in its fullness, okay? Anybody know where I'm going with this? Okay, so we're familiar with the concept in the New Testament of the already, but the not yet. So for example, for Christians, we have already been redeemed. We've been set free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin has been broken. It's not ruling us like before. The blood of the lamb has redeemed us and set us free, but our full redemption awaits. Total, final freedom from the presence of sin and no more fight against the power of sin. Right? That still awaits. So already but not yet. Or did you know that if you are in Christ, you have already been resurrected? 
already, but not yet. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is the spiritual biography of every Christian. We were spiritually dead in our sins and God made us alive together with Christ, saving us by his grace. So we were spiritually resurrected, right? Our old life is dead and buried and we're walking in newness of life. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. So already we've been resurrected, but our bodies still die. We haven't yet been fully resurrected. We await the resurrection. It doesn't come in its fullness until Christ's second advent, his second coming, when God makes all things new and we receive resurrected bodies to be joined with our resurrected souls. So the first advent is like D-Day, the storming of those beaches, was like the incarnation, cross, and resurrection. So our God is a warrior, and in his war with evil, with sin and death and the demonic powers, D-Day has already occurred. When Jesus died and rose again, the ultimate, the eternal victory was already won. Beachhead has been secured. It's just a matter of time. But the fight rages on, right? We're not yet safely home in eternal peace. Many battles are being waged. Many battles remain to be fought. But VE Day is coming. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen? So we long for, we look forward to the second advent when all things will be set to rights and God will make all things new. So you're going to want to keep that framework in mind as we consider our second passage in this Advent series in the book of Hebrews, okay? So if you missed last week, you can catch up online, but we are doing a series for Advent, the four Sundays that lead up to Christmas, and then Christmas morning will kind of cap it off since Christmas is on a Sunday this year. Um, We're looking at five different passages in the book of Hebrews, and as we look at these passages, we are on the lookout for the glory of Christ, Glory of Christ revealed in the book of Hebrews. There is a lot of glory revealed in this book. We're only going to be able to zoom in on a few glimpses of it. And I hope that this Advent series whets your appetite for more. So I'd encourage you to spend as much time as you can in the book of Hebrews this month and beyond. There's so much glory to be seen and savored um, in this book. So this week we're going to consider Hebrews 2, verses 5 to 10. And we're going to focus in on the suffering and the glory of the Son. Last week it was the supremacy of the Son in chapter 1. This week it's the suffering and glory of the Son and what that means for us. So if you're not there already, turn to Hebrews chapter 2. And again, if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1001. So let me read the text that we're going to study and then we'll dive in. And as we do, just may the Lord open our eyes to see wonderful things in his word, wonderful things in the face of his incarnate word, his final word, that we might adore our Savior more, fixing our eyes on him so that we can run the race that's been set before us with endurance. 
All right, so Hebrews chapter two, verses five to 10. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. All right, so let's dive in here. Point number one, who rules the world to come? Look at verse five again. Now it was not to angels, or for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. Isn't that a strange statement? <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know how many times I've read and studied the book of Hebrews, but somehow this sentence kind of slipped past me. So it tripped me up. It hasn't tripped me up in the past, I think just because I missed it. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So apparently, that's what the writer's been speaking about, is the world to come. If you're familiar with chapter one, you might say, huh, where, where is he talking about that? Where is he talking about this world to come? Well, let's look at it. Chapter one speaks Firstly, so eloquently of the transcendent majesty of the Son. We looked at that last week, the supremacy of the Son. In the past, God spoke at many times and in various ways to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. That's the first tip-off. The last days are now upon us. The new world, the world to come, has already been inaugurated. It's already begun. So the world to come has broken into the present. It's the already and not yet. So God in Christ is already making all things new. Jesus has already made purification for sins by the sacrifice of himself. He has already sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Which in the context here is why it's so dangerous for these Hebrews to revert to old covenant Jewish beliefs and practices. So they would actually be turning away from the only sacrifice for sins to the provisional, the ultimately ineffective sacrificial system. They'd be kind of like going backwards in, in time as far as redemptive history. They would be turning away from the substance that had now come to the shadows that all along were pointing to him from the full and final revelation of God to the incomplete and the partial, from the glorious new covenant to the obsolete old covenant. So for them, these first readers, they were suffering persecution and, and suffering. 
and they were in danger of shrinking back from the Son of God to kind of the comforts of Old Covenant Judaism, which is why the writer gives this warning in 2, 1 to 4. So this is just going to help us get a grasp on the context before we walk through verses 5 to 10. There's a warning here. Therefore, this is chapter 2, verse 1, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, speaking of the old covenant, Mosaic law, that was the conception that the law was mediated by angels, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So he has been speaking of the world to come, okay? And he's not just speaking about the new heavens and the new earth way out there in the future. He's speaking of the last days are upon us and the new age has dawned with the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So, Verse 5, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. So who does rule the world to come? If, if not to angels, then who is it subject to? Well, the answer might surprise you, but we need to consider a bit more who rules the world now, okay? So point number two, who rules the world now? Let's look at verses 6 to 8. It has been testified somewhere, and he's quoting Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Remember this from the scripture reading. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So the writer to the Hebrews quotes Psalm 8. Why does he do that? Why does he quote Psalm 8? What's Psalm 8 about? Well, David's reflecting on the glory of creation. He's in awe. He feels very small and insignificant. You remember? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man? Mankind, that you are mindful of him. Or the son of man, that you care for him. So David is praising God. It's a, it's a hymn of humble praise to God as David reflects on Genesis 1 and mankind as the crown of God's creation, right? The crown of God's creation, humanity, made in his image, was intended to exercise dominion over the earth as God's representatives, Right? We were made for a little while, lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. He put everything in subjection under his, mankind's, feet. And then the writer of the Hebrews makes an interpretive comment. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, again, contextually, mankind, he left nothing outside his control. So that's the way it's supposed to be. All this world is supposed to be subject to mankind. Adam and Eve 
benevolently, wisely, ruling and subduing, being fruitful and multiplying and spreading the glory of the Lord across the entire earth as the waters cover the sea. But that's not the way it is, right? So the writer goes on to say, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So we know the story, right? Satan, a fallen angel in the form of a serpent, slithers into the garden and he upended the world. Adam and Eve are guilty. So he deceived them. They bought that lie, that bill of goods. Instead of them being happily subject to God and the world and everything in it subjected to them, they actually became rebels and slaves. Rebels toward God and slaves of sin and Satan and death. So even though God is ultimately and always the sovereign king of the universe and most certainly of this world, no one can sway his sovereign hand. Under that sovereignty, God has in a sense given the administration of the present world to angels. I know this sounds really weird, but both good and bad. Does that sound strange to you? For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Implication? This world has been subjected to angels. What in the world are you talking about? <laughs> so we're not going to take the time to, the time to look at every single text that would point in this direction. You can look at Deuteronomy 32.8 later. Daniel 10. Just look at this one briefly. So Daniel is met in a vision by an angelic being who says, we have that on the slide, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, an angel, archangel, one of the chief princes came to help me, for I was there with the kings of Persia. So in some sense, there's these angelic powers who have authority over the earth, and there's demonic powers that are battling against them. Shouldn't totally surprise us. We know Ephesians 6.12, right? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The Bible talks in 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, of Satan as the God of this world, the God of this age, you could say. Or remember the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness when devil tempted Jesus and he offered all the kingdoms of the world I will give to you if you just bow and worship me. So in, a, in some sense, they were his to give. Or you could consider Ephesians 2, 1 to 2. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked following the course of this world and then following the prince of the power of the air. We were under his rule. So Satan is the god of this world. We kind of, before we are made alive together with Christ and our eyes are opened, we follow Satan like lackeys, like lemmings. That's how we are in our sin. And he is a bully. That's how he rules. He's the strong man that runs the place and the neighborhood has gone to pot. It's more chaos than order down here. It's more lack and emptiness than fullness. 
So despite being the crown of God's creation, crowned with glory and honor, made in the image of God, created to rule as his vice regents, because of sin, we human beings are slaves to sin and Satan. And the end of verse eight in Hebrews chapter two is truth that we cannot deny. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And remember, that's mankind in the context of Psalm eight. What is man that you are mindful of him, mankind? So I don't know if has anybody noticed lately, maybe you noticed it by reading the news, Human beings are not very good at being human. We're not very good at this. We're certainly not very good at the original calling that God gave to our first parents to benevolently, wisely rule and subdue, to cultivate and keep the world and everything in it. Adam and Eve failed. Israel, as God's son, failed. Humanity has failed. We were supposed to fill the earth with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What have we done instead? The world is filled with, I mean, it's just polluted and wrecked and exploited by us. We've filled it with idols and injustice and violence and disease and chaos. So we are subject to death by all kinds of means outside of our control wild weather and wild animals and viruses and we die by water, fire, cold and heat. We don't exercise dominion like our God in whose image we are made. We more often reflect the wicked manner, the wicked rule of the God of this world with the forked tongue. So we were supposed to rule, but we failed. So this present age, in a very real sense, subject to angels, good and bad, but that's not true of the world to come. The world to come is under new management. That's what this text is saying. So the writer goes on, even though we do not yet see everything in subjection to mankind as God originally intended, but we do see, point number three, we do see Jesus. We do see him, verse nine, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So we don't presently see all things subject to mankind. We do see the Son of Man, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. So do you see how Jesus is the Son of Man? He will succeed where humanity, where mankind has failed. But the writer would want to say, don't misunderstand, he's not lower than the angels, which is why he went to lengths in chapter one to show that the son is superior to angels. Like in 1.6 of the son, God says, let all God's angels worship him. He was made temporarily lower than the angels. Not because he's inferior to the angels, but because he had to be made like us to represent us so that he could save us. So Ray Brown, commentator, says it well. He says, Christ came not only to share our humanity, but to transform it. 
On account of sin, man is not crowned. He is degraded. Creation is not subject to him. He is in subjection to it. So the first Adam plunged us into subjection to futility. And the son of man, the second Adam, he had to be made like us. He had to take on flesh and blood so that he could undo the effects of the fall in order to usher in the age to come. So on account of the, of the incarnation, his first advent, the son of God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature became the new and better Adam, the true representative of humanity to fulfill the calling of Genesis 1, Psalm 8, to usher in a new age, a new world, to make all things new. So in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, and his son became the perfect sacrifice for sin to make purification for us. So he entered in, take on flesh, to represent us, to set us free, to bind that strong man, the God of this world, to plunder his house, to cast out the God of this world, to rescue people from the domain of darkness and transfer them to the kingdom of light. He went through suffering for us and now he's seated in glory, right? Chapter one, he's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high and he is now leading us as our pioneer, as our captain, on the trail that he blazed. So point number four, suffering to glory. Look at verses nine and 10. So we don't see all things subject to mankind like God intended, but we do see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned now with glory and honor, right, at the right hand of the majesty, Chapter 1, verse 3, because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, everyone who would trust him. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So let's connect these verses first to the previous context here. Where is this world to come? What's it like? How do we get there? Again, we've failed. We've all failed. Not just Adam and Eve. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins. We're all Satan's lackeys, whether we know it or not. We can't make our way to heaven. We can't climb the ladder to enter God's presence. If, if we could, we wouldn't have any appeal before the judge of all the earth. We're guilty. We're defiled because of our sin. All of us. We can't self-atone. We can't make purification for our sins. No matter how many good things we try to do, we can't save ourselves. But praise God for Advent, for the first Advent, the first coming of the Son. Only God could save us. But only a God-man could save us, represent us, and be our substitute. So the Son of God, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, the one by whom all things were made and the one by whose 
powerful word, the entire universe is upheld, like it says in chapter one, he willingly embarked on this infinite condescension. For a little while, he's made lower than the angels. He's not less than them, no, he created them. But he did so by the grace of God, as the embodiment of the grace of God, that by his suffering and death, he might taste death for everyone so that we could be redeemed from sin and death and hell. So one note here, when the writer says he tasted death, um, we could probably easily misinterpret that. So he just kind of took a little nibble of it, like a little sip. Oh no. The meaning of that phrase is that he experienced it. He went through it fully for us. In fact, he drank the cup of the wrath of God to the dregs and set it down and declared victoriously, it is finished. It is done. So aren't you glad that Jesus tasted death, experienced death, went through death for you? Like he's been there. He went through it. He, the one who has gone before us as forerunner, trailblazer, pioneer, he is our savior and he is a sympathetic one because he's been there. And we're gonna get to that passage in chapter four in a couple weeks. So praise be to the son who is our substitute because he was our representative because he took on flesh so that he could Take us human failures and redeem us and make us into what he intended us to be all along. So isn't that fitting? Like, didn't it have to be this way? I mean, certainly it was a surprise in the first century. You know, the Jews, they didn't expect a Messiah like this. You know, they wanted to see signs. The Greeks wanted to see wisdom. This was, you know, weakness and folly. But listen, if God was going to bring many sons and daughters to glory, of course he would have to make the founder, the pioneer, the trailblazer, the captain of our salvation, perfect through suffering. It's the only way. It's the only way he could save us, the only way that he could be just and the justifier is if he, as our representative, became our substitute and he bore the punishment of our sin so that we could be purified and saved and reconciled to God. So that language there, it might sound a little strange to our ears, he was made perfect I mean, wasn't Jesus eternally perfect? Wasn't he sinless? Like, why, how can it be stated that he was made perfect through suffering? Does that mean he was imperfect? No. This is not from perfection or perfection from imperfection. No. This is going through everything that was necessary to become perfectly suited as our substitute and savior. So he had to endure the incarnation, right? He had to take on flesh if he's gonna save us. He had to endure the testing in the wilderness with Satan. That wasn't optional. In fact, 
He even had to go out of his way to talk to that Samaritan woman at the well because of what he was planning to do, to save people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. All of this obedience was necessary so that he would be a fully, completely, perfectly suited savior to our needs. He had to upend the tables in the temple. He had to press through that terrible test in the garden of Gethsemane. And he had to be betrayed and arrested and crucified. So his obedience was never imperfect, but it had to be gone through. It had to be completed and finished so that he could be the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our sins through suffering. So how else could he become our substitute and savior? How else could he truly be the founder and the pioneer? He had to go through suffering and death to be both representative and substitute and to do so with sympathy. Isn't that awesome that he is our sympathetic high priest, our sympathetic savior because he's walked a day in our shoes. He suffered with us and suffered for us. He doesn't just bark orders from the command center. He's not aloof and, you know, unwilling to get his hands dirty. Listen, let me put it this way. Had he failed at any point, if he had given in to sin, he would have needed a high priest and an atoning sacrifice, right? He wouldn't have been able, he wouldn't have been the perfect sacrifice. So he had to obey in order to be perfected through his suffering to be our savior. So D-Day is done. The decisive battle has been won and VE Day is coming soon. So between the first advent and the second advent, dear brothers and sisters, the book of Hebrews would exhort us to not drift, but to run. So that would be one kind of application as we walk through this passage. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. And what we've heard is the final word in Jesus. So let's tune our ears to that final word. We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. And then, brothers and sisters, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder. Same word that we find in chapter 2, verse 11. He's the founder of our salvation. So he's blazed the trail and we fix our eyes on him and follow him. He's the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we are running the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We are all Christian pilgrims then helping each other follow Jesus all the way home between the first and the second advents which is why another one of the applicational themes in the book of Hebrews is the importance of encouraging each other along the way. A couple of passages, Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brothers, 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort, encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Or Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day, V-E day, drawing near. So just one example, if any of you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress um, by John Bunyan. At the end, there's this really sweet, powerful section where, so he, Christian, okay, he's the kind of primary um, figure in this, and he has a friend, um, Hopeful. He and Hopeful are coming to the end of their lives, coming to death, and they have to pass through the river in order to make it into the celestial city, and the river represents death, and it's a fearful prospect even for a Christian to face death even for Christian to face death. So here's what Bunyan writes. Now between them and the gate, the gate to the celestial city was a river, but there was no bridge to go over and the river was very deep. At the sight of this river, the pilgrims were stunned. Then the men who went with them said, you must go through the river or you cannot enter into the city at the gate. Then the pilgrims, especially Christian, began to despair in their minds. They looked this way and that, but no way could be found to escape the river. So they waded in. And upon entering, Christian began to sink. He cried out to his good friend, Hopeful, saying, I'm sinking in deep waters. The billows are going over my head. All his waves go over me. Then Hopeful said, Be of good cheer, my brother. I feel the bottom, and it is good. So if hopeful can say that to Christian, how much more so our captain who blazed the trail, who leads us all the way home, who has gone through death and is now resurrected and seated victoriously at the Father's right hand. He is, God is leading many sons to glory. We are all following our captain. We don't have to bivouac our own way. We don't have to hack through the bushes and try to find the way there. Jesus has already blazed the trail. We just need to keep our eyes fixed on him. And he has defeated sin and death and hell and given us firm footing to walk all the way home, even through death. So if pilgrim to pilgrim, I feel the bottom, it is good. And we should encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of us will be hardened. We should encourage one another more and more as the day approaches. But how much more the pioneer to us pilgrims. Let's like pay careful attention to what we've heard. Let's tune our ears to the words of our captain and not drift into inattentiveness. Let's be attentive and focused and fix 
our gaze on Jesus. Let's behold his glory in his suffering and in his exaltation. And let's realize that that pathway, suffering to glory, is our pathway. So yeah, we are walking through the wilderness in this life. There's a lot of suffering, a lot of weariness and hardness and temptation and and pain and all of that. But we follow the captain who's already won D-Day. And Victory Day is coming. Let's keep fixing our eyes on Jesus, running the race that's set before us, and by his grace, by his glory, we will be empowered to run that race with endurance. He is leading many sons and daughters to glory. His suffering led to glory. He leads us on that road, and our suffering will lead to glory. VE Day is coming. The battle is the Lord's. He's already won it. He is and he will make all things new and we will reign with him forever. The world to come is ultimately subject to God, but we will reign with him and live out that Genesis 1, Psalm 8 vision of ruling the earth with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that this all is true and we see how fitting it is. What an amazing revelation of your heart and goodness and kindness and love and wisdom that this would be fitting. Help us to see the glory in the suffering, the willing suffering of the Son to become our representative and our substitute. And I pray that you would help us as we walk through the suffering and the trials of this life encourage us that the decisive battle has already been won and it's just a matter of time and I pray that we would be enabled by your grace to run with endurance as we look to Jesus our pioneer and the perfecter of our faith thank you Lord Jesus that you tasted death you experienced it for us And as we approach the table, help us to savor the fact that we can taste your goodness because you tasted death for us. In Jesus' name, amen.